when we think about wealth from an indigenous worldview and then for ourselves as an organization, we look at more than just the bottom line. And when we look at generating wealth, it's not about generating wealth as an individual. It's about generating wealth as a community or as a nation and steeped in our value system and the way that we make decisions and even the way that we've structured ourselves. We're taught not to leave anyone behind when we do have prosperity, that prosperity is shared equally amongst our communities. And we're always taught to make sure that we help those that may not have had luck or, or benefit or gifts and, and skills that others have been blessed with. Well, that's not what I learned in school. It's not what I learned from my family. And it's definitely not how most businesses in capitalist societies like Canada and the US are run. I know this because companies are still saying that their primary purpose is to make money for shareholders, and they're still asking for a business case for equity, diversity, and inclusion. So here's my question. If this is our worldview, how's that working out for us? Sure, it works great for about 1% of the world, but the other 7.8 billion people? Mm, not so much. Well, today's guest shows us a better way, one that generates profit while also prioritizing people and the planet. Thomas Benjo is a member of Muscapeding First Nation, located on Treaty 4 territory in what we now know as Saskatchewan, Canada. He knows how to build wealth and successful businesses as a former commercial banker with RBC and now president and CEO of FHQ Developments. Maybe you're thinking, sure, I believe in diversity and making my company inclusive for all people. But at the end of the day, I run a business and I have to manage my costs. So how do I balance the two? Fair question. And Thomas gives us ideas on this because he has to strike the same balance. FHQ's businesses are not charities. They are financially self-sufficient while paying living wages, not just minimum wages. Thomas shows us a way to make this counterintuitive model work, why managing to the lowest cost is bad for the economy, and how to do more than just tick the box when hiring Indigenous employees. And these innovations are gaining recognition in the corporate business world too as evidenced by the Globe and Mail, naming him a 2021 Report on Business Changemaker. So as we ponder how to make our companies more equitable, diverse, and inclusive in the new normal, not to mention how we can each take part in reconciliation with our First Nations, I challenge you to incorporate one of Thomas's business practices in your company today. But first, a quick intro and land acknowledgement. Welcome to Changing Lenses, you're invited to step into the lives of people on the front lines of discrimination, racism, and exclusion, to see the world through their eyes, and to hear their personal story of their fight for social justice. I'm your host, Rosie Young, a Chinese-Canadian, immigrant, cis-straight female with invisible disabilities, and I am passionate about justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Do you also want to see social change happen? Then please join me and changing lenses. Each episode is hosted on colonized land that was taken from many Indigenous nations, including the Anishinaabe, the Huron-Wendat, and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. I seek truth and reconciliation with First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people of Turtle Island, and I call upon us all to decolonize our thinking, not just our systems. Now please enjoy the episode.
So hello, welcome, Thomas. I'm so honored that you join us on this Changing Lenses episode today. Hey, Rosie. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Oh, yeah, I'm really excited. And before we start recording, I already commented on your artwork, but I love the background that you're in. And maybe just for the sake of our listeners, you can even just describe your setting. I'm sitting in my ugly kitchen, but you have a beautiful backdrop behind you. <laughs> what is this painting with the horses and, the, and what they look like warriors riding on these horses? Yeah, so it's where we're actually in our, our boardroom. We asked an artist that we know quite well and, and support. So we asked her to depict different themes for our boardroom. And one of the themes that came out was a uh, meeting space. And so uh, she actually depicted 11 warriors hmm. all on horseback going to meet. And so that's representative of the 11 First Nations communities that are a part of our, our tribal council. Amazing. It's very beautiful. I love the colors. I wish our listeners could see this all. It's beautiful. And actually, that's a great introduction to your nations. In the introduction to this episode, I talk a little bit about where I'm based land-wise and what the traditional territories were. Will you please share with us where your land is based and treaties that are related to that and what the land means to you? Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm from Muscopeding First Nation. Currently, where we're located is uh, in Regina but within the Treaty 4 territory. And our office space is actually located on Niganit First Nation land. It's an urban reserve here in Regina. And so we're speaking to you from this location. Wonderful. I think some of our listeners may be used to hearing land acknowledgements like in a meeting or a conference, and I'm not sure what they think about it, what it means to them. But especially coming from a person from you know, an Indigenous nation, what does it mean to you to speak about the land or to hear other people do a land acknowledgement? Well, I think it's important that we are acknowledging and respecting the territory where we are present. And when I think about the territories that our tribes actually represent, it's very vast. We could look at one of the smallest communities we have from our tribal council, which is, you know, maybe... 250 members from that community, but just that small community, their actual traditional territory goes far beyond the Treaty 4 territory. They go as far north as the Northwest Territories, as far east as into Ontario, as far south into the mid-US, and uh, right to the coast. Our territory is actually very vast when we think about where our, our true territory is. So... It's, it's important to acknowledge, but also there's a bit of historical context that it was negotiations with government that refined us to specific locations, but we, we don't have borders. We don't see borders. Our communities are, are much more vast. Mm. I really appreciate you talking about that. And I think it's good, especially for non-Indigenous people to hear. Uh, one of the things in the Truth and Reconciliation Report that I've really taken to heart is we talk about treaties, but actually these negotiation of treaties, while seemingly honorable and in good faith, were actually fraught with fraud and coercion. So not everything's on the up and up, even if there is a treaty and not all land does have a treaty attached to it. And it's beyond the land. There's people, there's communities, as you said. So really glad that um, you're here to talk and, and share that from your personal perspective, not just as some kind of an announcement before we get into you know the agenda of the discussion or whatever. So thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. And actually, on the note of truth and respect and reconciliation, I want to say before we get going on a lot of questions that I have for you, I'm so interested in hearing your opinion. 
But I also really want to be respectful and acknowledge that I am still learning. I don't know a lot. And I want this to be a safe space for you where you feel like you can share openly and be respected. And so I commit to you and our listeners that this is a safe space. I want you to be real. I will be honest and real. And I also invite you to keep me accountable. So if I mispronounce anything or if I say something that is either disrespectful or just maybe not quite uh, the right thing to say, please do let me know so that I can learn and also so our listeners can learn because they're with us. Okay. No, I appreciate that. This is mm-hmm. going to be great. Awesome. All right. So let's dive into this. I'm very eager based on your incredible work so far. And I think your, your rising success, you've been acknowledged by the Global Mail as a change maker. You're now the president of your own company, but obviously you didn't start out here. <laughs> it's been a bit of a journey. So could you please share with us a bit about what your journey has been Maybe starting with even like why you got interested in a career in business. Yeah. So my interest in business started at uh, a very young age. I actually picked up uh, a magazine in high school and seen a very successful Indigenous CEO that was the head of a very large development corporation. And it really got me thinking about, well, you know, what can I do? I have an interest in business. And I actually think it was conversations with you know, elders in in my family and and elders in the community, just talking about where we needed help the most. And it was some of that guidance and and feedback that drew me in the direction of business. I've always been an entrepreneur and and always tried to work no matter what it was. And actually um, was just reminiscing about all the jobs that I've worked. I think it was well over 20 different jobs I've worked. Just having that experience in in working and then making the decision to go to First Nations University and pursuing a a business degree from there and and specifically chose uh, that university because of the Indigenous business program, which I mean, you can't get that type of education anywhere else. So very, very unique with leading edge professors that uh, were leading in Indigenous entrepreneurship and which university was that, that Indigenous University? First Nations University of Canada. So okay. it's actually right here in Regina, which is super unique. It's the only fully First Nations post-secondary institution in, in Canada that is at a university level, I should say. Yeah, that's awesome. I didn't know that that existed, that there was a First Nations University. Are non-Indigenous people allowed to attend the university or is it specifically you know, just for First Nations? Absolutely. It's open to anyone who wants to attend. Mm. As part of our leadership in Saskatchewan, it was really important for them to have their own institution and to begin teaching their own youth. And so there was a major commitment from the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations, or FSIN, which is what it's called now. You know, they made that commitment back then to make sure that they had an institution for post-secondary because just prior to that, Canadian policy actually made it as though Indigenous uh, or First Nations weren't allowed to go to post-secondary or they would be considered disenfranchised, which meant you gave up your status and all the rights and benefits that, that would come with that. And so this was part of that reconciliation, I guess, at that time was to create our own institution and University of Regina helped with that process. And here we are with our own institution and with actually record growth for student enrollment. Really great place to just learn and bring some really unique experiences together from students. Wow. Okay. That's super interesting. Sorry, I interrupted your story. So yes, you you went to this amazing university and then? 
Yeah. So I worked with our professors and did joint consulting projects with them and eventually went out on my own and did my own consulting, which helped to build my experience. And eventually I had the opportunity to attend a number of conferences and was selected through a program that was called Inclusion Work. So they picked the top 100 Indigenous students across Canada. They invite you out to this conference and then you go on a five-day interview with multiple companies across Canada. Through all of those things, I was able to get quite a number of, of job opportunities right across Canada just because of my unique background and, and education. So I, I had the opportunity to choose and I actually chose to work with RBC and I became a commercial banker. And my big focus or my passion has always been to help our communities, help our nations succeed in business. And so I felt that becoming a commercial banker and being able to learn more about finance and structure and due diligence, I was hungry for, for learning inside of the organization. And, and that allowed me to build new skills, which eventually led me to the opportunity of, of where I am today. So I spent six years within RBC, was in progress to work towards a leadership position within the bank. But in those six years, I was asked to sit on the board for FHQ Developments, you know, a brand new company. I was brought on as a youth director, a board member. And it was in that role that I was able to learn from the other board members about governance and best business practice. And eventually the opportunity came up that the board wanted me to take on a, a leadership role. And at the age of 30, I took on the uh, CEO role for FHQ Developments. And you know, I've been here uh, now four and a half years building the business and expanding our, our strategy. That's great. That's so inspiring to hear. I mean, obviously a lot of hard work, but that it panned out for you so successfully. I'm really happy for that. I'm interested in what made you choose that RBC role and like what a great testimony to you for, <laughs> for Royal Bank, right? Were there other jobs similar and you chose the organization or there wasn't any other roles? Like why that particular position? I guess the opportunities I had were a lot of different business and governance roles. And the big differentiator with RBC was actually meeting and, and speaking with uh, a commercial banker that was specifically involved with Indigenous banking. And it was his testimony about why he chose to work for RBC was what compelled me to take on the opportunity. But also besides that, some of the people that, that I take as mentors, they actually had careers in RBC as well when they first started out. And so, you know, it was some of that influence as well. And then the other really important thing that RBC was able to offer me compared to the other banks was the ability to stay here at home. They knew how important that was for me to be situated here in Regina. The other offers were all in Toronto, where, you know, the head of Indigenous banking was happening for their organizations and, and their training programs. Being home is really important for me just because of my connection to my family. And I'm considered a leader in my family. So it's very difficult to lead if I have to be far away. So very important to be here. And then Besides that, my, my passion is to help our communities here locally. So, you know, really important for me to make that consideration. And RBC was flexible enough to do that. And I was able to build a great career and actually transitioned into Indigenous banking 
So first of all, RBC, you're welcome. I promise you, RBC did not pay me for any of this stuff. But yeah, that's that's actually says a lot about their culture and how they're supportive of employees. Interesting what you said about Indigenous banking not being not a ton of opportunities, because I just saw um, an article the other day about how the Indigenous economy is $30 billion. I've been thinking along the lines of how capitalism and business in corporate Canada, corporate North America, as we know it today, is really steeped in a lot of colonial values, right? And it is also based on making money. How can we make more money? How can we make even more money, the most money? From what I've been learning about Indigenous culture and Indigenous people, I don't think that is quite the same values or the same thinking. Are you able to share with us what, from your nations, or if there's generally also an Indigenous worldview on money, on business, on trade, what is that and how is that different from corporate business as we might know it today? When we think about wealth from an Indigenous worldview and in for ourselves as an organization, we look at more than just the bottom line. And when we look at generating wealth, it's not about generating wealth as an individual. It's about generating wealth as a community or as a nation and steeped in our value system and the way that we make decisions and even the way that we've structured ourselves. We're taught not to leave anyone behind when we do have prosperity, that prosperity is shared equally uh, amongst our communities. And we're always taught to make sure that we help those that may not have had luck or or benefit or gifts and, and skills that others have been blessed with. And so it's just recognizing and, and honoring those gifts that, that were given and being able to share that prosperity with our community members. And so when we look at wealth generation, I mean, yes, we have to be profitable in our businesses, obviously. So that part of the bottom line is important, but how we, we conduct business and how we ensure that there's a major economic impact in our communities, that's really important to us. So how are we making sure that we're building Indigenous capacity and not just from a frontline labor position? It's how do we make sure there's Indigenous capacity at all levels of the company? How do we make sure that there's training opportunities so that those that may have missing skill sets are able to train and and develop further in their capacity? How do we ensure from a governance perspective that we have seats on our boards that we're filling those with Indigenous individuals as well to build their knowledge of governance? How do we look at reinvestment? How do we make sure that we're reinvesting, we're, we're doing it in a sustainable nature that will allow us to continue to build success for future generations? We have a very strict process in how we choose to reinvest dollars into the community and We specifically chose our our youth because that's our future workforce. And so we focus on STEM programming, entrepreneurship, arts, culture, language, all of those types of things that are are building good skill sets in our youth, but also creating an opportunity to build uh, recognition of our organization and instill pride in who we are as an organization that they can think of themselves as having a future here with us. So, you know, all of those aspects we take into consideration and reinvest back into not only our communities, but the community that we do business in is is really important because when we're able to earn a contract or take on a new business, 
It's what type of an effect do we want to have as compared to a very capitalistic approach to how much money am I going to make? How much are my shareholders going to earn? And that's great for those models and then for capitalism, but you often leave our our communities behind, which, I mean, you see that in modern day economics where there is great disparity between the ultra rich and the poorest people in our, our community get left behind. And we take into consideration even from a wage perspective and livelihood, because that's building and generating wealth in the community with those individuals that work for us. And yes, we're not cheapest when it comes to contracting, but we're also choosing to, to pay a living wage to our frontline staff, which is really, really important. And we do get comments about that. And, you know, we do janitorial work, for instance, and oftentimes companies are looking for what's the lowest price I could pay somebody to, to do this work. And, it, you know, we take a step back and say, well, wait a minute, let's not forget that these people are a part of our community. They have families and by reinvesting in them and, and giving them a living wage, they're going to have a greater effect in the community overall, because they're going to take that wealth that they're building and they're going to invest it in things that they need to grow as a family and be good contributing members of, of society. So those things are really important. That's how you create more impactful wealth in our, our communities. And that's how we focus our business. It's helped to build loyalty as well amongst our staff to know that we are taking care of them. They don't have to struggle if they ever have a health issue. I love that. I have heard of a couple of other companies, something similar, like they're trying to pay based on what the take-home pay is for their employees. So I'm trying to figure out, maybe help my listeners to figure out, because I get asked a lot, well, what's the business case for inclusion, equity, diversity? And if I'm being very blunt with people, I would say there isn't one if all you care about is the bottom line. Frankly, I don't see a business case. If you're talking about profit, I don't see a business case to eliminate slavery. Like, why wouldn't you want free labor, right? I don't see a business case to stop uh, child labor and unsafe working conditions. Because, of course, you get the cheapest building you can, get the workers who can't fight back, and you pay them dirt, right? Or don't pay them at all in the case of slavery. I'm not saying at all corporate Canada is thinking about it that way. But I could see some honest questions of how do you balance that really tough balance, right? Like, you said you're making money. How do you treat people equitably and inclusively and and do things like pay a living wage? How are you striking that balance as an investor and a business person? What has been really key to our strategy for our business is making sure that I absolutely understand where these policies are coming from and, and why an organization even chooses to go down this path of having some sort of Indigenous engagement or Indigenous procurement policy so that it's not just something that is superficial, you know, so I'm having conversations that are beyond just the contracts. It's more about what is the strategy for the organization? Why are you choosing to do this? And I think it's in those discussions that we're able to build a better understanding and try to get those organizations to think that, you know, we're just purely looking at the cheapest cost or, you know, lowest cost uh, product or service. I try to teach them about what does it mean uh, for you as an organization to create economic development? And economic development means that we're building our economy to be strengthened. And so what considerations are you making as an organization that would be considered an investment in the community versus 
trying to get something as, as cheap as possible. And I think it's in those conversations that we've been able to take a different approach and have a different look at how we are doing business. And so it allows us to negotiate differently with our clients about some of those aspects. And so they're a bit more open to having a conversation around negotiations on price or on contract and having that higher level understanding of what we're trying to accomplish at the end of the day becomes the really critical point of the conversation to be able to build a better understanding. And then, you know, I think about some of the work that we're doing right now in in terms of some of the government procurement and they're doing the job that they're being told to do, but they're also following a philosophy of making sure that they keep costs low, right? And I'm sure we all know about performance measurements and I'm sure they're measured on finding savings for the organization. But when it comes to making a decision about diversity and inclusion, you have to go at it from the perspective of what does economic development look like? What does impact look like for the economy that we're doing business in? And that's where you need to make some consideration that you will have to spend a little bit more, but you also have to think about what is that greater impact that I'm actually creating by doing that? Am I creating benefit locally in in the economy if I'm choosing to buy something that is super low cost from another country and we're shipping it here versus paying a little bit more and seeing that happen here within our own economy, which we know those workers are going to live, work and and play within the local economy. And so they're going to continue to spend the dollars that they're earning from that business in our economy. So that's what they really have to take into consideration when making those decisions. That's what gives us opportunity to step in. and, And when organizations say they are interested in Indigenous engagement, but they don't really have the necessary tools in place or or necessary policies in place. That's where we know as an organization that, Kate, we're going to have to roll up our sleeves here and, and work with them and really help to build their understanding of why this is so important. And so there is a lot of advocacy work that is being done in my role and even amongst my staff to have those conversations with our our customers. I loved what you said earlier about looking at impact more broadly. So not just what percentage ROI, return on investment, that's financial. And I think companies are finally starting to get there. Maybe we should look at like a social ROI, not just a financial ROI. But you guys have actually done it. Is there an example you could share with us where that illustrates exactly what you said, that the the impact is good and it is much broader than just whatever the financial ROI is, but your financial ROI was also good? (laughs) Yeah. So one of the things that we've actually built as an organization, it's going to become a bit of our secret sauce to, to how we demonstrate impact, but we've actually created an economic impact calculator that is based on our business model. And so when a customer chooses to give us a contract, we can actually specifically say what the economic impact has been on that specific contract with us. What that demonstrates to them is what the true economic impact of our business has been. And besides our non-Indigenous competitors that we may compete against, we now have this tool that differentiates our business model to show that we do have a greater economic impact than our competition. And if you really do care about building up our local economy, 
will then make that additional investment in working with FHQ developments because this is what we're all about and this is the impact we're having in the community and and we now have the tool to be able to demonstrate that impact. What are some results that you've seen that return on investment? Some of the multipliers could be anywhere in a range from a 1.5 multiplier up to a five times multiplier. It all depends on the, the contract. And so, you know, you earn a $100,000 contract and typically in the construction area, it's usually in that two to three times multiplier. So, I mean, a lot of cases we're seeing a, a 2.4 multiplier. So, you know, earning a $100,000 contract could attribute to $240,000 in, in actual economic impact because of our business model. I think data analysts need to be flocking to you and your team to understand what you guys have built in this model and how to do this more broadly. I've been pushing for a long time that your business case, so to speak, on being more equitable, diverse, inclusive needs to include these intangible, hard to measure data pieces, right? What are some of the components? Like, what are you factoring into this economic calculation that you guys are doing? Well, we've actually used the expertise of an economist and and several consultants to, to help build this tool for us. So we're looking at it from a variety of different industries because, you know, obviously our portfolio is diverse. So we have to take into consideration what's a professional service versus contract versus tech versus renewable energy. Everything has a different factor that you have to consider in each of those industries. The only thing that's been difficult for us, and, and we're not quite there yet, is some of the additional social impacts, which are very, very tough to put a finger on. So, I mean, our calculator gets us to a point of economic impact. It's just we haven't been able to get into the full social impact. And and that's because there's just too many variables that you would have to consider. And so in terms of the data, we know that we're creating a great impact through the economic impact. But we're missing part of the story of the true impact in terms of that additional social impact that we are having based on our business model as well. That makes sense. So really, the multipliers that you named before are even higher if you were to consider the social impacts that are not in it yet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the factors would be quite considerable if we were uh, to look at identifying what those additional uh, factors would be. Gotcha. Okay. I should have asked this from the beginning, because for people who aren't super familiar with FHQ, what is it that FHQ offers in terms of service that companies can buy? Well, we have quite a number of of companies. So we're in the construction industry, sort of our bread and butter as an organization. We're also in uh, the hospitality industry. We we own a hotel that has been very successful. And, And even through a pandemic. We had a little bit of a hiccup, but we're, we're back to normal operations there. And we're now looking to start getting engaged in the tech industry. We'll look to make future investments in the tech industry, as well as looking at renewables. So we do have a considerable amount of renewable energy projects that are currently sitting on the fence. You know, if we're successful on these bids, those will bring significant long-term benefits to our communities because those large renewable energy projects are 25-year arrangements and have 25 years of cash flow from those major capital projects, we'll see tremendous benefit in our community for the long term. 
That's amazing. It's a diverse portfolio, right, of businesses and services that are provided. So just in this line of business alone, it sounds like if someone needed to contract some construction help, then they can go on FHQ's website and look to see what construction services are available for contract. And these services are staffed and provided by uh, First Nations. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. What's really unique to our model, I mean, even inside of FHQ developments, I mean, we have three different divisions, right? It's our investments and partnerships, which takes care of all of our, our business entities. We also have an economic development function, which tries to help build the Indigenous business ecosystem around us. And then we have our third division, which is our HR. So Tokata HR Solutions focuses on getting our people employed. I mean, not just our people from within our tribal council, we have a lot of Indigenous individuals that work for us throughout the organization. So we're trying to make sure that we have a good handle on the talent that we have and the development of that talent for future growth. I was just asked the other day by a number of HR professionals, someone was wanting, I guess, to hire more Indigenous people or find more people of color and was asking about what job boards are out there? Where should we post our job? And I was kind of torn because on the one hand, like, okay, I appreciate the intention of what you're trying to do. And maybe there are some specialized places to go to look. But first of all, just even if you found them, like this is about finding people, that doesn't mean that they're going to want to work for you uh, or that you're attracting them to your organization. But also, why would you think that the same people aren't also looking on LinkedIn, aren't also on Indeed, like aren't on the typical job boards where there's mass jobs out there? Are we not further marginalizing people by saying, oh, we're going to need to go to an Indigenous job board to find Indigenous people because that's where they're looking for jobs. We're not going to go to LinkedIn. So I wondered if you had any opinion or thoughts on that, like for, for companies who genuinely want to hire more Indigenous people, what advice do you have on how to go about doing that in an equitable way? Well... To go back in, into the history of where Takata started from, we were a labor services company. So basically, we found Indigenous people, we put them to work with companies, and we checked a box. We said, okay, we got that person a job this year. Great. Over time, I, I started to feel, and, and our team started to feel like that's not enough. Just getting people employed is not enough. And then one of the things that, that we've seen or, or noticed in the process was that when we were choosing to hire those Indigenous individuals, a lot of the times the opportunities were very, very short term. And so they were falling victim to a policy issue. And the policy issue being uh, a lot of the procurement departments, their, their policy was how many Indigenous people did you employ on this particular project or this contract? You know, nothing about quality, nothing about the amount of hours, nothing about the salary and are we building a career? It was just purely, did we get an Indigenous person hired? And it didn't matter if it was one day, one week, three months, a year. It didn't matter. It checked a box. That didn't sit right with us as a team. And we felt like we needed to do more for our people. And so we came up with a completely different strategy on how we were going to do that. And so Takata's focus then became how do we become that conduit to ensure that if we are placing an Indigenous person with a company, what is the end game here? Are we seeking out an opportunity for full-time employment, which is the absolute goal uh, of our organization is to try to actually build careers for uh, our people versus just the short-term stints. There's a lot of advocacy that our team does 
for those indigenous individuals to work with our clients. And at the same front, for the employers, we're advocating for them as well with the individual and indigenous employee that, that we're putting to work with them, because sometimes they're not able to have comfortable conversations about the workplace or about how they were treated, or there may be unconscious bias that we're dealing with in their processes. So we're that conduit in that relationship. And it's built on the premise that we have strong Indigenous HR professionals within our organization that have seen and experienced this time and time again. So they're helping to break down some of those barriers that organizations may not have a a strong sense that exists. They're helping to break those down. And we're obviously seeing a lot more success. We've had a much stronger retention uh, rate compared to just sending a stack of resumes of Indigenous talent to an organization and hoping that they're going to be a good connection. It's in some of the relationship building ahead of that with the individual and with the company that pays in the long term for both organizations. Perfect. Thomas, I really want to thank you for the incredible wisdom, the, the stories, the, the learning that you shared with us. Our time is almost up and there's millions more things that we could ask you, but we just we need to let you go back to work so you can keep building your community. Um, I wonder if just to close this off, if you could share with us some thoughts. I, I mean, you're a strong Indigenous leader, not just in your community, but across Canada. I think you're finally getting recognized for that. And you have such insightful and unique perspectives on business, on economy on just being a good person. What advice could you share if you're mentoring the future Indigenous and non-Indigenous business leaders of tomorrow? What advice might you want to share with them? I I think it's important to have passion, uh, having more passion about, you know, not just what is it that I want. Something interesting that I seen was around Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You know, in that hierarchy, a lot of it talks about us as individuals. It's all about me. And actually, an Indigenous person's hierarchy of need is, is about community. It's about how do I fit into the community? How do I contribute to the community? How do I find my sense of belonging? And instead of just looking at personally, why me, 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 you know, what can I do to, to better the community? And I think Having that type of an understanding will only open up your mindset into thinking more broadly about your actions and about the things that that you value. There's so much reward that I find in the things that that I do in in my job because I I see the effects and I, I see the benefits. And we try to share as many great stories all the time on our social media about individuals that have become employed within our organization and just hearing some of their story. Those are the things that really tell us that we're on the right track. But also it's that sense of satisfying a gap in the community versus, oh, I just donated $500 away to a charity this week. Well, you know, it's more important to help somebody build some livelihood versus just cutting a $500 check. We really have to start thinking that way. You know, if we're going to take what are we going to give back and, and how is it going to impact the community? I would say in terms of those individuals that really want to help to be an advocate or an ally in helping to see this change in their organization, just continue to follow what we're doing. We have our social media channels and I plan to do this for a very long time. And, and so the more allies I have helping us 
achieve the same goal of increasing the effectiveness in in our community, increasing the economic impact, we're going to get to a place so much quicker. I can't stress it enough, being able to build strong allies in, in these organizations that a lot of your listeners work for. Really think about how can you include this type of thought into your organization because it's going to create future opportunity for maybe an Indigenous business to work with that organization, or it's going to create an opportunity for another diverse business owner to participate within that organization. And we will start to see healthier communities, I believe, when we start to think this way. Incredible. Count me in as one of your allies. I stand with you, Thomas, and I want to support FHQ and your communities and your nations as well. So I'm in. Hope many other people that are listening right now are also in. And I'm glad you brought up the social media too. I imagine some people might want to get in touch with you. What's the easiest way for people to do that? I use all the social media. So LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, a lot of the business community will use LinkedIn. I get quite the flood of emails every day, all sorts of questions and connections and interest in what it is that that we're doing. And and so I try to manage communication through there as well. But just following FHQ developments and what we're doing as an organization, follow our our story and, and our journey as we go along and celebrate with us when we are seeing those great successes in, in the community as well. We will definitely make sure to do that. And I'll include all of your links and handles and stuff in the show notes. This was really fun and educational. And it's just inspiring to hear what you've been doing. And to everyone who's listening, thank you for chiming in. I hope that uh, you did enjoy hearing Thomas and do feel free to follow up if you have any questions. If you're looking for some additional resources as well and just want more information on equity, diversity, and inclusion, please feel free to check out my website. That's changinglenses.ca. And you can also find links to uh, all the podcast platforms so you can subscribe to on whichever is your favorite. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Thomas. And and until next time, I'm Rosie Young, your guide to Changing Lenses. Thanks for joining us. I hope we helped to change your lens and expand your worldview. And if you want to talk about today's episode with a safe community or ask me questions directly, please join our Changing Lenses Facebook group. The link is in the show notes. This episode was produced and hosted by me with associate production by William Liu and post-production by Q9. Until next time, I'm Rosie Young, your guide to changing lenses.